Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Is it me or does it seem like everyone is angrier, more depressed and more medicated than they have ever been before? That stuff plays out. That plays out. Address your question. Do you? Oh my God. If you feel like the world has gotten crazier, you are not alone. There are some numbers to back this up. Suicides have skyrocketed, and they are the highest that they have been in decades. Opioid deaths in the U.S. hit a record high in 2021, killing over 100,000 people. We are so politically polarized in the U.S. that stores had to be boarded up during the election. This polarization is also reaching far beyond the U.S. In the last decade, the number of protests and riots around the world have doubled, and the number of strikes have quadrupled. What does anger, depression, and Americans more medicated than they have ever been have to do with the media? That deep-dive deconstruction of the way things are coming up. But first, British actress Natasha McElhone is our guest on Arts Express from the set in Croatia filming the next season of Hotel Portofino in which she stars as Bella Ainsworth, the owner and manager of the Italian resort nestled in the sumptuous, deceptively serene surroundings amid the rise of Italian fascism leading up to World War II. But surviving both the menacing politics of the time, as well as asserting herself as a woman taking charge, presiding over a collection of rowdy and demanding guests, is nothing new for her in movies. From the actress's first struggles on screen, Surviving Picasso, the title of her very first James Ivory film in 1996, as real-life artist in her own right, Francoise Gillot, surviving Anthony Hopkins' temperamental Picasso, the father of her two children, and locking horns with romantic rival Dora Mare, a French photographer, painter, and poet played by Julian Moore. First, some scenes from Surviving Picasso. Ah, Bosch. I showed them everything. Matisse, Rousseau, Braque, everything. I showed them some early drafts of Guernica. Last year, they ransacked my house and they woke off with my linen and left my paintings behind. How insulting, preferring my towels and my sheets to my paintings. Begging, ashamed of them. Were your friends? Yeah. Francois. What do you do? I'm a painter. You're a painter. Me, you? Painter. You have the same studio? No. Who's your favorite painter? Van Gogh. Van Gogh? Yeah, he's all right. Yours? I don't know. Who are your friends? Uh, Francoise and Geneviève. They're painters. What do they paint? Besides their fingernails. He's going through his usual routine. Oh, so you're painters. I'm a painter, too. Come to my studio. I'd like to show you my work. I know your face so well. Painted it before you were even born. You must come to my studio sometime, and uh, I'll show you around. You know, I've painted your face before you were born. No one stops you on the street and says, you're a Picasso? No? Never? Do you remember me? Ah, you've changed. I knew you would. Picasso is an agent of change, a catalyst to blow everything inside you to bits. Yes, if you let him. This is my friend Geneviève from Montpellier. You don't look like someone who lives in Paris. And you, you look like someone who's been breathing in the air of Picasso's studio. Peculiar air. Sometimes it seems like poison gas, but then you find you can't breathe in any other. That is not at all the case with Francoise. I don't like cats. But when my dog died, he gave me a cat. I still have it. It's called Moon. He gave it that name. It's a very vicious cat. Look. He'll leave you when he's ready. 
Even then, you won't be free of him. And after him, without him, there's nothing. After Picasso, only God. That cat just won't die. And now we'll hear from Natasha McElhone over in Croatia on the film set of Hotel Portofino for season two coming up. As she reflects on what the traumatic series has been all about and why, and dropping hints as well about the new season in progress. Welcome to the Hotel Portofino. A very English hotel on the Italian Riviera. How utterly charming. What's that dreadful racket? I believe some guests are arriving. Oh, I knew we should have rented a villa. How does an English family come to be here in the first place? A fresh start. After the war. A chance to put all your troubles behind you. We must do our best to make it all seem worth your while. Jack says we shouldn't settle for a penny less than 100,000. The painting is gone! Vincenzo Dagnoni at your service. He's a fascist, Cecil. You would be wise to tolerate him. Who is the subversive in our midst? In this sleepy little town of all places. Don't touch me! What exactly is it that you want? What we all want to see your hands with. Do you think he'll be all right? He's lost a good deal of blood. So how? I really think we should be friends. But friends don't blackmail one another. Is everything all right? Stop worrying. Hello, Natasha McElhone, and welcome. Yes, please, fire away. Okay, well, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. Happy to be here, or there. <laughs> what was it about your character, Bella Ainsworth, that drew you to her to become part of this production? I think what was lovely about the pitch of this show when I first spoke to the producer, um, Walter, whose idea the whole show was, was that there was quite a lot of room for maneuver. I think I was just saying actually to Joe that the season one, as is, often the case with first seasons of shows, you're sort of finding out your landmass and um, what the show might become or the flavor of it, the, the, the tone, the genre, all of those things. And once that's kind of been established, I think now that we're shooting, we're actually shooting season two at the moment. I'm in Croatia. I probably shouldn't say that it's Croatia and not Italy, but anyway, <laughs> that's the truth. So people should book their holidays for Croatia. Um, um now that we're here again, we're able to drill in much more deeply to character and um, sort of event where, you know, there's less establishing, I suppose, uh, which is, is really fun. And the kind of the actors are really excited about this season. So I feel she's becoming and growing and changing as, as we go, actually. I think the first idea was that a woman in that era, one of the few outlets they might have had for um, a sort of creative expression was, you know, the domestic arts and then pushing that to its limit, you know, perhaps a hotel or running some kind of hospitality um, business, which is which is what she forays into. And then I think she sort of grows and grows from having that, that canvas finally outside of the, the control of um, her husband and... Um, you know, a lot of the, the the male figures in her life, not even the male figures, but just legislation as it was back then. And um, uh, she's, you know, I don't know, sort of a, you know, a, an original bohemian, I suppose. Um, a, a, a sort of, I don't know if it's a familiar word in America, but the, the Bloomsbury set, that sort of thing, may, may, maybe minus some of the more transgressive um, sexual activity. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah she's she's a free spirit and bella as a woman back then is pretty much left to run this hotel by herself and that enormous and complicated responsibility 
Did you draw anything from your own life to play a woman in that situation as a single working mother yourself? I think I, I, what I hope about the show, and particularly as it progresses, as I say, and you get more deeply into the story, I think quite a lot about her life will be relatable to in any era. Um, she's someone who's taken on a lot of responsibility. She's definitely a carer and a sort of um, nurturer and empath. Um, but she's also ambitious. You know, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And I feel that lots of people relate to that, the sort of the, the overwhelm um, that she sometimes feels. But it, equally, she kind of brings upon herself, I suppose, that that could be, you know, the criticism that perhaps... Um, she has such a vision for this place, um, particularly in season two, it, it it sort of mutates into something slightly different, which I, I won't give any spoilers, but um, it's her that's driving all of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, you'll see. And did you draw anything from your own life to play a woman in that situation as a single working mother and summoning the strength to survive and prevail? I think we all draw from our own lives when we're acting. Yeah, I mean, in equal measure, I think most actors go into it because they are storytellers and they love um, being other people uh, other than themselves. You know, there's some escapism there, and I definitely love that element of playing someone who existed in a different time and had, uh, you know, different restrictions and constrictions and mining and exploring what that feels like. Um, it's definitely both, I think. You, you, you tap into sort of uh, veins and arteries that are relevant to the character and to the story, but you also hop out of your own life um, for a lot of the day into someone else's, which, which for me is definitely why I think I probably wanted to act since the age of three. It was, it was fantasy and escapism, mostly. And there's quite a disturbing subplot beneath all the misleading serenity and splendor of that isolated setting, the post-World War I menacing rise of Italian fascism, and however seemingly shocking to the British there, it's remarked when it's insisted that there are no fascists in England, quote, of course there are, they just haven't put on a shirt yet. What are your thoughts about that, and quite a fascist and Nazi following in this country at that time as well? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so this um, yes, that we have um, veterans who have sort of survived the war. So we have that undercurrent, and as you say, this um, there's a sort of mask-like veneer um, where you know champagne corks are popping and new builds and um, a sort of frenetic. Um, attempt at in partying and enjoyment and um, you know coming out of, of war um, but we have the black shirts we have a whole storyline in fact which is probably further explored in season two between two characters um, and one of them is in the resistance um, and that gets very dark um, and I think it's a good juxtaposition yeah you, you have this sort of this frost and then you have this murky, um, kind of awesome, you know, it explores mafia, male hierarchy, all kinds of themes that um, I think pertain to the rise of fascism. There aren't, there aren't that many female fascist political figures in our history. So, yeah. Now, you face quite an enormous challenge as a woman surviving Hotel Portofino, but you've been there before portraying real-life artist in her own right, Francoise Gillot, surviving Picasso in that film, her temperamental lover and father of her children. What can you say about being drawn to playing her as well? Oh, that was my first movie. Um, it was so long ago. I mean, I honestly think 25 years ago at this point. Um, and it's strange. I was talking about that movie yesterday. Someone asked me about it on set. Um, I it was a, I absolutely loved the experience of doing that with James Ivory, who who lives in New York, in fact. Um, and he is 
he was, you know, like my fairy godfather. He he introduced me to movies in a very, you know, it was her story, really. Um, she was the narrator of the piece, and it was such an honor and a privilege to work with Anthony Hopkins and Julianne Moore, Jane Lapiter. It was an incredible cast of actors in that film. Um, so she was uh, an interesting and complicated. And what was great fun about that part for, for, for a young actor was I got to play, you know, a stretch of a decade and um, watch and embody this woman, this woman's changes throughout that time, um, you know, from sort of almost girlhood into motherhood and beyond. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was a great experience. Now, you're also about to come out in a film, Carmen, with an unusual story about Carmen, whom you play, mistaken by a village for the new local priest, what drew you to that story? Where will I go? You are good, dear Carmen. And you will live eternally in bliss. When will that happen? When will what happen? Bliss. Find it. <laughs> if I stay one more night with my husband, I will die. Make him the same food until he doesn't come back. Thank you. I will pay you back, I promise. May I help you? Would you like some more wine? anyone those don't know time or place <laughs> no one can blame you for falling in love it is rare and beautiful written and made by a wonderful director called um, Valerie Rugiar, who is Maltese Canadian um, and was an actor as well, is an actor as well. But, um, you know, her directing came a little later in her career. And it's the story of her aunt, in fact, or um, who lived in Malta, or it's based upon that story of her, who there was a tradition... Um, and I suppose in lots of Catholic countries too, where the priest, the, the sister of the priest, the um, unmarried sister, would end up looking after the priest in the church in the vestry and prepare everything for him and make his lunch and you know, see to his needs, um, but with very little um, the appreciation or you know gratification. Um, but it would just be an assumption that was made at the age of this girl was 16. And what are you up to in the film? It's a story, really, of this woman who then ends up, um, <laughs> because she has nowhere to go and she has no family to go to once her brother dies and he's no longer the priest of the church. She ends up trying to sort of pretend to be him in the confession box, um, and she has people come in to confess, and she ends up seeming to give terrific advice to all these women, um, but with a sort of slightly male voice. And, um, and then she ends up realizing and being able to experience love, um, albeit in a slightly, you know, in a, a, sort of, I wasn't going to say inappropriate, because it's not particularly inappropriate, but it's, it's an ill-matched um, choice. But nonetheless, she gets to experience love for the first time, all sorts of other things, and, and has her, her past visited upon her. And I won't, yeah, won't give too much away, but it's a really lovely, lovely story and heartbreaking, but joyous as well. I, I love making those kind of movies where you're it's sort of like guerrilla filmmaking. So is this another story of struggle, like surviving Picasso? Yes, ah. yes. Well, based on a true story. Um, and, and, and I would say surviving Picasso too, e even though it was very much inspired by Francois Gillot's book, um, you know, she didn't give um, permission for her book to be adapted, so be respectful of those real-life figures and uh, 
I, the, these are fictionalized versions of their lives, as I would hasten to add. And any last word about Hotel Portofino and what you'd like to convey to viewers about the dramatic series? Um, I, I, you know, what, what I think one of the things we all want to achieve is, even though we really want it to appeal to modern audiences of, of all ages and demographics and so forth, I think there's a sort of a feeling of trying not to be revisionist, but to represent society as it was at that time, with all the restrictions and various prejudices and so forth, um, to partly, you know, to celebrate and enjoy how far we've come. <laughs> but um, I think there's, it's not overtly um, political, you know, in any way. But but I think, you know, there are lovely kind of embedded messages hidden in it that are there to be found if people want to. I think it should appeal to. Um, you know, hopefully a wide range of people. And as I say, I think as the seasons progress and you're into season two, you you get to learn a lot more about these personalities and their various ghosts and demons. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it becomes juicier and um, richer. And what can you say about what's going on over there with Boris Johnson's resignation and how are people reacting there? What's going on? I'm assuming you're asking about the British political situation. Yeah. Um, I'm in Croatia and uh -huh. immersed in 1927. Um, <laughs> um, so thankfully, um, I'm not immersed um, in the news and the fallout, the inevitable fallout um, of what happened to Boris. Um, I will... Yeah, I will no doubt be immersed in it once I get back home because um, I do get very drawn into the news and into politics. <laughs> but I'm I'm really enjoying the fact that I'm not there and I really have no one to talk to about it. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, thank you, Natasha McElhone, for calling into our show. And I hope I pronounced your name correctly. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it and um, have a good day. And Hotel Portofino's six-episode dramatic series is broadcast on PBS Passport and the PBS Masterpiece Prime Video channel. And the film Carmen will be out in release in August. And coming up next on Arts Express in the Poetry Corner, Jazz Poetry spoken word performance artist Sky Covington with Jazz Poem Detroit. In the beginning, jazz was born. Crying louder than fire. I mean, jazz was fire. And blues fueled jazz. And then there was the sky. It's blues, it's Dixie, it's bebop, it's swing, it's jive, it's bop. It's boogie, it's, it's wings. This is my jazz poem. I rumble through the melodies, from street to street, from ghettos to ghettos, trying to wing and find myself in the scatter of my, in my everyday inhibitions. I prance and dance, I mean, I romanced, I did everything that made jazz, but I was still trying to learn jazz because you see, this is my jazz poem. Hey, sweet papa, Satchmo, hey, Duke. I am 400 years of music. Ripped and tattered, stitch by stitch. Soil and blood stained. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, she's seen, he's seen. But when you listen to jazz, you were right there, right in the midst of the blood and the wind and the dust in my lips, on my chin. I can hear the spider webs in my earlobes. I mean, I can hear the door opening and closing, and they call that jazz. 
so anybody can walk this path that they were chosen. And this is jazz. I mean that real deep traditional jazz. I mean that deep, deep down, deep, 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 deep in the ground, deep under the sea, deep where the fishes can't go deep. I mean deep, 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 deep. I mean this is jazz. This is the Congo Square as it rumbled through the clouds. And as she spread her legs like a hot trombone, Jazz made his way to earth. He made his way in my heart. He made a way in my soul. He made a way. when he plays that note so beautiful and the horn plays and then that drum and then you can hear Mr. Dunlap do that damn thing he does with them drums. I mean, this is just so unbelievable. It's amazing how Mr. Ibrahim Jones plays that upright bass. I mean, it's like... Jimmy Blues for us and give him a kiss on his cheek as he plays the piano. Yeah. He brings some righteousness to this thing in the D. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for his fingers. <laughs> Jazz knocked on my door one night and he said, your head buried between what seems to be your legs that could not save you from their lasso. You got so much to give to this earth, so why are you going backwards? Stand up, young lady. Put your crown on and scat. 
for the university of jazz, for the soul of jazz, for the sophistication of jazz, for the legacy of jazz. Mr. Dunlaps, to the Ibrahim Jones, to the Jimmy Blues, to the Motor City Josh, John Douglas is, ah. <laughs> let's stand up, let's stand up Detroit, let's stand up, let's stand up for jazz, jazz, jazz. Thank you, Sky Covington. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express screening room and our corporate media watch with Zeitgeist's You're Not My Enemy, The Media Is, an excerpted analysis of the, quote, media outrage machine, with connections to Terminator, Planet of the Apes, Network, The Apocalypse and Mad Max, and the Radio Act of 1927. Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Is it me? Or does it seem like everyone is angrier, more depressed, and more medicated than they have ever been before? That stuff plays out. That plays out. Address your question. Do you? Oh my God. If you feel like the world has gotten crazier, you are not alone. There are some numbers to back this up. Suicides have skyrocketed, and they are the highest that they have been in decades. Opioid deaths in the U.S. hit a record high in 2021, killing over 100,000 people. We are so politically polarized in the U.S. that stores had to be boarded up during the election. This polarization is also reaching far beyond the U.S. In the last decade, the number of protests and riots around the world have doubled, and the number of strikes have quadrupled. Survey research by Pew Research shows that uh, the, the degree to which we feel that the other side is not just, we just don't just dislike them, we strongly dislike them, and we think that they are a threat to the nation. Those numbers have gone up and up, and those are over 50% now. A Pew poll revealed that about half of Republicans and Democrats have few to no friends on the other side of the aisle. And some scholars have said that we haven't been this divided since the Civil War. Families have been broken apart over political views. Everybody's wrapped up in social media conversations. They carry them on over to the dinner table and it, it gets people in arguments at work and all this stuff no one saw coming. So how did it get this bad? I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. The reason is what I call the outrage industrial complex. They are similar to the military-industrial complex, but their profits come from keeping you as mad as possible. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. This iconic scene is from the movie Network, which is about a struggling news organization that allows its lead anchorman to go on outrageous rants because it boosts the ratings. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. Aaron Sorkin wrote that no predictor of the future, not even Orwell, has ever been as right as Chayefsky was when he wrote Network. It looks like it has been a blueprint 
or Clinton Cash the movie, produced by Stephen Bannon, then chairman of the right-wing nutjob goddamned fascist website Breitbart. My title for Hillary Clinton's new book instead of what happened is living in denial and in need of a lobotomy. The media wasn't always this way. When lots of consumers started buying radios in the 1920s, the FCC was established and the Radio Act of 1927 was passed. After televisions were invented, this became the Communications Act, which required that television stations gave equal time to all political candidates. In 1949, the Fairness Doctrine was passed, requiring broadcasting stations to provide contrasting viewpoints on controversial issues. For the next several decades, television stations were dominated by the big three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. These networks didn't need to compete with each other, and they were seen as staples in American homes. News agencies are always trying to push narratives on people, trying to get people wound up and upset. Uh, and that is a conscious business strategy that we didn't have maybe 30 years ago. You know, you think about Walter Cronkite or what the news was like back in the day. You had the whole family sitting around the table and everybody watching. It was sort of a unifying experience to watch the news. Things began to change in the 70s when advanced satellites allowed local TV systems to receive signals from distant broadcast stations. In 1987, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed and was completely abolished in 2011. Rush Limbaugh was the first hyperpartisan radio show host to take advantage of the deregulation. And just two years later, he had more listeners than any other talk radio show host. Roger Ailes noticed this success and established Fox News in 1996. Ailes realized that opinion spouting was a lot cheaper than news gathering. And he also understood that a loyal audience was the most important strategy, even if it was smaller. Because production costs were so much lower, Fox News turned massive profits. CNN and MSNBC took notice and followed suit. Their ratings boomed as a result. So according to people, 62% of the coverage that they see is biased. I'm actually surprised it's not higher than 62%. Mm -hmm. Where do you go to actually just get the facts today? Just well, get the story. Well, other than Fox Weekend, of course. Yes, obviously. Uh, yes. MSNBC host Chris Hayes said, at some level, we're wedding DJs, and the wedding DJ's job is to get you on the floor. In essence, news stations need to play the music that their listeners want to hear. Many times, news stations will pass up important stories in order to focus on trivial nonsense, such as the Covington Catholic School debacle. This story was simply a Rorschach test and ended up making a fool out of the left-leaning TV stations when the full story came out. You listening to this? Mm. It was the last time the world wasn't falling apart, huh? Newspapers have also been complicit in stoking outrage. Over the last 20 years, their business model was changed from being advertisement-based to subscription-based. Nearly 25% of local newspapers died as a result, and many others that survived became ghost papers, meaning that they were bought out by hedge funds that gutted their newsrooms and hired cheap labor or used unpaid contributors to create a content farm full of clickbait articles. Newspapers like the New York Times that were able to successfully transition to a subscription-based business model went the Fox News and MSNBC route by cultivating a hyper-partisan audience. Before the internet, news companies had like a basically free way of, to ma of making money. They dominated distribution. The newspaper was the only thing in town that had a, you know, if you wanted to get a one ad, it had to be through the local newspaper. Now with the internet, the internet is the distribution system. Anybody has access to it, not just the local newspaper. And so the easy money is gone and we have to chase clicks more than we ever had, uh, had to before. We have to chase eyeballs more than we have to. So we've had to build new money-making strategies and, and a lot of it has to do with just sort of monetizing anger and division and all these things. And we just didn't do that before. A former New York Times correspondent has said that they followed a top-down approach instead of a bottom-up approach. Instead of organically chasing stories, reporters needed their stories to fit the narrative which was a storyline that was mapped out a year in advance. I want the public to see Spider-Man for the two-bit criminal he really is. He's a fake, he's full of stick'em. Catch him in the act. Spider-Man with his hand in a cookie jar. Whoever brings me that photo gets a job. The news has become nearly indistinguishable from tabloids, and they are actually not even hiding this. 
Both Fox and MSNBC have been sued for accusations of slander from Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, respectively. They both used variations of the same defense in court by saying that they are not stating actual facts, but instead are stating opinion. During the George Floyd protests and riots, which occurred with the backdrop of COVID lockdowns, both stations saw their highest ratings ever. They say that sex sells, but so does outrage. It's brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch, sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360, brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline, brought to you by Pfizer. When people are glued to the TV, they are bombarded with ads that are making them even less happy. The University of Warwick conducted a study comparing survey data on the life satisfaction of 900,000 citizens in 27 European countries from 1980 to 2011. They found an inverse connection between annual ad spending and the satisfaction of citizens. Even accounting for other variables, it was clear that their experiment found that advertising made people unhappy. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy it we don't need. Last year, seven in 10 pharma companies spent more on sales and marketing than they did on R&D. They spend billions of dollars each year on direct-to-consumer ads, and antidepressant usage is at record levels in both the US and the EU. It is often debated whether depression is a disease of affluence and whether it comes from a desire to reach higher on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. Social media didn't start the outrage, but it sure as hell poured gasoline on it. While social media can be used for activism, it has also led to a rise in hashtag activism and has exploited the worst impulses of narcissism. This narcissism often kills genuine debate, replacing it with virtue signaling that divides us even more. If someone could have literally sat in a lab and created the perfect tool for narcissistic people to sit somewhere and get the validation and supply they needed. That tool would have been social media. In the blink of an eye, we entered a universe of influencers and population-wide manipulation, and frankly, a population-wide development of people developing their false selves. Many of us are glued to social media as studies have shown that it is more addictive than cigarettes and alcohol. Likes on social media cause the same brain activity as winning the lottery. Like cocaine, this sense of satisfaction is short-lived and it's not real. It's, it's a slot machine, and, and I mean that technically. So when you pull, it's a, that's a variable ratio reinforcement schedule, if I remember correctly. And it's very addictive because if you pull on the slot machine arm enough, you will win. And you never know which poll will reward you. And so not only is that addictive, it's very hard to extinguish that. As the social dilemma said, we are all living in our own Truman show. And this has also had an effect on the ideas that we are exposed to. Many people are aware of confirmation bias, but they are not aware that things wouldn't be much different if it were the opposite. In 2017, 1,220 regular Twitter users participated in a study where they followed a bot that retweeted elected officials, media figures, and opinion leaders from the other side. At the end of the experiment, the participants became even more polarized, showing how repugnant both sides have become. It doesn't take Russia to sow discord in our population. We've done a fine job with that ourselves. But guess what? None of this is real. It's all manufactured. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by the brain. Reveal. 
Well, we'll be, we can begin with life itself through most of human history. Right. Life expectancy at birth, we're around 30. Uh, now it's 71 worldwide and 80 in the more developed parts of the world. Um, education, uh, through most of human history, the vast majority of people were illiterate. Now 90% of people under 25 in the world can read, read and write. Look at how the world has changed in just one generation. South Korea had a lower GDP per capita than Somalia in the 1950s, but now it's one of the most advanced nations on Earth. In less than 30 years following a devastating genocide that saw one million deaths in one month, Rwanda has become one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. Colombia has come a long way from the days of Pablo Escobar and is now a top destination in the world for digital nomads. China has pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in just the last 40 years. Um, peace, uh, even though there are horrific wars that continue to go on, the rate of death in, in war worldwide is about a quarter of what it was in the 80s, about a seventh of what it was in the uh, 1970s during the war in Vietnam, to say nothing about what it was in the early 50s during the Korean War or uh, World War II. We think that our differences are irreconcilable but a British soldier and a German soldier from World War II, which was the worst war in human history, have proven this notion wrong. I, and I'm so glad to see you and to hold your hand and say, <laughs> bless you, we are, we are partners. Once we were on a different side, but, but, but we are partners together no, no, in, the re, in the rebuilding of the world. No, we are friends. We are, we are more than that. We are more than that. We are brothers. Something else causing fear is climate change, but carbon emissions in the U.S. have been coming way down in the last 15 years. China is the largest emitter of CO2 in the world, but they are reversing this quickly as they are building tons of nuclear power plants and plan to be carbon neutral. There are things that people need to know. The number of deaths from natural disasters has declined over 90% over the last 100 years at a time when the human population quadrupled. The new data appears to suggest that, that this year, the first half of 2020, will have fewer deaths from natural disasters in recorded history. We should be celebrating these successes. We're making incredible progress towards protecting ourselves and our children from, from extreme weather events. Global tourism hit a record level in 2018 with 1.4 billion international tourist arrivals, making tourism a $1.7 trillion industry even tourism to Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East are increasing rapidly. This means that many more people are being exposed to a variety of cultures. I think I made of maybe before I started traveling, I thought that the human race as a whole were, you know, could, could and would turn on itself at any moment, you know, venal, petty, cruel, arbitrary. And it's true that all of those things exist in this world, but I meet mostly pretty nice people doing the best they can, often under very, very difficult conditions. But I think that on balance, the world is filled with people doing the best they can, you know, who love their kids and, you know, would like to, you know, put on a clean shirt every morning and live their lives with a little dignity and have access to food and water, hope. Um, just like everybody else. The media is creating an outrage machine now, but there are signs that things are getting better. In the 1800s, newspapers actually worked directly for political parties. Even during the years of the Fairness Act, major media stations got some major stories wrong, leading to mistrust amongst the people. While the dismantling of the Fairness Act enabled hyperpartisan jurors to arise, it has also paved the way for new media to thrive. The media becoming decentralized has allowed for many voices to be heard. And like this, and I think that one of the good things about podcasts too is you don't need anybody to tell you that you could you could publish this. Yeah, no, abs absolutely. I think you're you're right, and I'll, I think uh, formats like this reveal that the news companies are wrong about. Uh, about some things, about audiences, like they, they think that people can't handle an in-depth discussion about things. They think that audiences only want to watch 30 seconds of something. They don't. They're, they're interested. Despite everything that I've said, we are not actually that polarized. Boris Fiorina, a political scientist at Stanford University, reported this in his book 
that 96% of Facebook users don't click on more than one opinion piece every three months. Based on lots of surveys, the Pew Research Center concludes that the way the public thinks about poverty, union, civil duty, and many other subjects is almost the same today as it was in 1987. There are now more independents in the US than Republicans and Democrats. The point is that we aren't actually all that different. We just have a media that creates the illusion that we are for financial gain. Polls show that, that virtually no one knows these facts, that people are, do worse than, no. uh, as Hans Rosling put it, chimpanzees picking bananas, because the chimpanzees pick at random and people are systematically too pessimistic. The Onion had a headline, CNN holds morning meeting to decide what viewers should panic about for the rest of the day. I mean, we should worry about all these things, but it's kind of a, a cheap trick because if at any point in history, if you list all of the worst things happening I guess. in the world, it can sound pretty but scary. I, but I Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world. I feel like I can't take it. There's no such thing as a perfect time in history. We have unique problems that come with new eras. Sometimes it feels like the world is worse than ever, but when we look back on the past, we realize how much worse things have been and how much humans have grown and overcome. As far as the future goes, there have been many interpretations on how the apocalypse would come about. But for every Terminator, Planet of the Apes, or Mad Max, there is Ad Astra, Tomorrowland, and Star Trek. Yes, it's possible that an apocalypse could happen, but it's also possible that we could end up exploring the final frontier. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.